invite you guys to turn back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Of course, we're still kind of plodding along through this study of spiritual gifts that the Apostle Paul introduces to us as he is instructing the church at Corinth in the first century. And let me just read the passage that we're going to be focusing in on as a way of framing it up in our minds before we start with a a few introductory remarks and some review. Uh, We're going to be looking again at uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 7, and we'll continue on through verse 11. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, another according to the, excuse me, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And we've been talking at length for a number of weeks about spiritual gifts in general and also looking at some of these that are listed here by the Apostle Paul as a way of illustrating his primary point that he is instructing the Corinthians in, namely that there are varieties of gifts. They are apportioned in various ways and distributed as the Lord wills by the same Spirit they are, they are conducted in a variety of ministries to a variety of effects. So you have this blending of variety and sameness, variety of gifts, variety of distribution, variety of effects, but all given by the same Spirit, and more importantly, given by the Spirit according to His purpose and His will, and ultimately for the common good, as it says in verse 7, And as the Spirit uh, empowers or apportions each one individually. So every believer is, according to the Spirit's sovereign purpose, given gifts or given a gift or gifts, spiritual gifts, grace gifts, coming from the term grace, this word gift, uh, that are are to be used or deployed in the body of Christ for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ as we get in. Further into chapter 12, we'll see the Apostle Paul imploring what is, I'm sure for most of you, a very familiar metaphor of the body, the physical body as representative of the body of Christ. And we'll see this this, uh, interdependency of the body of Christ and the nature of spiritual gifts as a means by which the body is built up uh, and how it is vitally important that every believer is using their gifts within the body to build it up. So this principle of gifts being given for the common good is only going to be more uh, further emphasized and more vividly illustrated as we go through this study. <clears throat> and and the, the principal point that I think we need to keep coming back to is that this, this, this entire letter, really, this particular section even more specifically, it really drives home the point to all of us what is the actual nature of the church? And I think that it's not a small thing for us in our contemporary culture and our contemporary sort of church experience. It's very important for us to be reminded of this from Scripture because we are living in and surrounded by a consumeristic ethos. Uh, we, we are consumers, 
We are, we are marketed to so that we will buy. The fact of the matter is, is if you consult economists, they'll tell you that basically 70%, roughly 70% of our entire economy, our GDP basically, is driven by consumer spending. So we live in our particular sort of uh, market-driven, capitalistic economy and society. We live in a world in which a consumer mindset, a consumer ethos pervades. And what we have seen for many decades now is that consumer ethos has come to really define both the way that churches sort of organize themselves and sort of construct their basic ministry focus and operation, but also the way confessing Christians tend to think about their place or participation in a church. In fact, churches are places that you go to. I mean, we, we use, and I, I get that there's a place that you go to where you meet, but even that slips into our mindset to where if we go to this church and somehow that going to that church poses to us some kind of inconvenience or discomfort, then we might just decide to go to another church. I mean, how awesome is it when they build a Chick-fil-A closer to your house, right? We, we're, we're, my point is, is that this is the air that we breathe. This is just sort of gets on us. And so to be reminded from this particular study that that is not the church, that you and I are the church, and, and not only that, but that God, by his spirit, has sovereignly and graciously gifted all of his people that he has called, redeemed, regenerated, and indwelt by his spirit. He has gifted everyone with some special ability, some spirit-enabled ability, so that not only are they at the church or going to church, but they are the church and they are contributing that gift in the building up of the body for the common good. That is a completely different mindset than a consumeristic mindset. And when we approach our life in the body of Christ with that kind of biblical mindset, then it certainly will temper our our response and reactions to some of the normal challenges and difficulties and inconveniences we run into as part of being a part of the body of Christ and being a part of a local church. It also should fuel our enthusiasm and our passion and our conviction and our commitment to our part in the body of Christ, that we don't ever see ourselves as spectators or participants, regardless of of what your particular gift is, regardless of how your particular gifts are actually functioning within the body of Christ. This is also a very important principle that flows out of not just this particular section in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but also throughout the entire letter. The Corinthians, as do we, we tend to gravitate just sort of in our flesh and in our sort of worldly ways of thinking, our sort of secularized ways of thinking. We tend to gravitate toward the things that are more big and impressive and uh, sort of public in their, in their nature. We like a spectacle, in other words. We are oriented toward the spectacle. Oftentimes, the bigger, the better. Um, how many times, uh, just test your, test, uh, I want to go ahead and test how wicked you actually are. <clears throat> but how many times have you guys been to a fireworks display and been rather disappointed because it was just sort of, you know, eh, right? <laughs> I mean, you got stuff blowing up in the sky right in front of you, and you're like, eh, but that wasn't, you know, last year was just way better. I mean, we, are, we gravitate toward spectacle. 
And we actually are inoculated to the, the increasing nature of it. Like we, we get conditioned to where it has to be even bigger the next time. It has to be even more impressive. The experience has to be even more sort of visceral or moving. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's just how we are. And make no mistake, the enemy of your souls uses that to every conceivable advantage to lead you off track, in particular as it relates to your perspective of your role and responsibility in the life of the local church. And this is what was happening in Corinth. They were gravitating toward the upfront, big, sort of kinds of showy manifestations of the Spirit, quote-unquote. And they were, they were basically evaluating or judging true spirituality, authentic spirituality, or the place and prominence of certain people with certain gifts according to their showiness. And as we've said before, the varieties of gifts are to be deployed as the Lord wills in a variety of ministry contexts to a variety of effects. Someone can have the gift of teaching, for example, and not be standing behind a lectern like this week in and week out and have a vibrant and fruitful ministry in the life of the church. Being a gifted teacher might mean that you deploy that gift in individual sessions with people who you are discipling, and the Lord is using you in a profound way. And it's not so much that you have some kind of following of 50 or 60 or 100 people but that one person that you've invested your gift in have grown exponentially in their understanding of the knowledge of the Lord and their fruitfulness in Christ themselves. See, we've got to get away from these mistaken notions about what really it means to be a part of the body of Christ and to use the gifts that God has given us within the body of Christ. And we move away from this spectator mentality and this sort of dichotomy between those who are really gifted and those who aren't so gifted. We're playing right into what the Apostle Paul is going to just eviscerate later on in chapter 12, where we begin to compare ourselves to one another. We compare giftedness based upon its quote-unquote public prominence versus its more behind-the-scenes sort of working, and there's just no place for that. And so it really, this really is just a, a, an all-around helpful and instructive section of scripture for us in so many ways, not only in us understanding, as the Apostle Apostle Paul says, he wants wants them to understand about spiritual gifts. Not only does it enhance our understanding of spiritual gifts, but it enhances and improves and impacts our understanding of our place in the body of Christ and the significance of it. Well, last week, we began to look at what is the sixth spiritual gift in this particular illustrative list. And just a reminder, this is an illustrative list. The Apostle Paul is citing these gifts to illustrate a broader point. So not a lot of detail here. We have to just kind of use other passages of Scripture, either within the context of 1 Corinthians, be broadening it out a little bit further in Scripture to try to get a sense of what this gift might be or what he might be describing or referring to. But nevertheless, we come today to, or excuse me, last week we came to this sixth spiritual gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, the gift of prophecy, we talked about prophecy as being a spirit-enabled ability to publicly proclaim God's word to God's people with authority, accuracy, and effectiveness. In other words, it is a public 
communication kind of gift, a public proclamation kind of gift. That is inherent in the the term itself to prophesy. It is inherent in the definition of the term. It is a public proclamation defined term. So this gift of prophecy is a public utterance, public speaking, public proclamation gift, uh, and it's intended to to be speaking God's word to God's people, again, with authority, accuracy, and effectiveness. We noted how the Apostle Paul uh, provides some clarification for us uh, as to the primary purpose of this gift in chapter 14, verse 3, where he says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Again, re-emphasizing the point that this is to be about, about building people up, about encouraging them, about exhorting them, and about comforting them with a message from God, with the word of God. And this gift of prophecy then is to be characterized by clear, intelligible, coherent speech in which God's word is proclaimed and his people are built up and encouraged and consoled. It is not ecstatic in nature. It is not intended to be sort of, you know, sort of only spiritually, mystically ascertained. It is to be clear and coherent and communicable so that the recipient of the word can understand it and be encouraged and be consoled by it. Again, I make that point to continue to press home the way in which we need to evaluate many of the things that we're seeing in our contemporary culture as it relates to manifestations of spiritual gifts needs to be governed not so much by the things that we see and what they, how they make us feel or you know, some bad experience we've had in the past or sort of our sensibilities about, well, that's just wacky or whatever it might be. It needs to be governed by a clear understanding of what Scripture teaches, and then we measure everything by that. We don't measure things by our emotional reaction to it or our frustration with it or whatever. We, we just try to understand, what does Scripture teach? How would Scripture sort of describe this gift and its manifestation? And then we look out around us and we say, is that what we're seeing or not? Is that what it really is looking like over there? Or is it that really looking like something different? That's all we, that's all we want to do. So this gift of prophecy then is, is characterized by clear, intelligible, and coherent speech so that it can build up and so that it can encourage and console. We also noted last week that in Scripture, when you look at a true prophet, they are someone who speaks on behalf of God, by the will of God, in the power of the Spirit of God. That is to say, a true prophet is not one who is characterized by self-will or by some kind of individual benefit that they're garnering, And certainly not by some kind of public affirmation or notoriety. That is not what you see with the prophet in Scripture. Peter talks of this in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In fact, we talked about this last week as well, that true prophets of God were usually the objects of public derision and scorn. They were routinely persecuted, not applauded, as they presented their messages, their public utterances of 
of judgment or exhortation or the will of God. And so when you start to think about that and compare it to what we commonly see in this prophetic, you know, utterance kind of world that we see kind of swirling around us in some circles, there are some distinctions, I would have to say, some very clear distinctions. I think a good insight from John MacArthur's commentary on this particular section as it relates to this matter of prophecy, he says, when Christianity is persecuted, counterfeit teachers usually are scarce because the price for being identified with the gospel is too high. They are much more likely to appear in times and in places where Christianity is considered respectable or at least is tolerated. In parts of the world today, evangelicalism is popular and often profitable. All sorts of teachers, preachers, writers, and counselors claim to be be evangelical and biblical because it's easy to do so. For a long time now, we've been living in an age in which Christianity has been widely accepted, although that seems to be, that tide seems to be turning, I would say. But nevertheless, we've been living in this age where Christianity has been widely accepted and it's been even valued and affirmed. Even if it's just a pretense of Christianity or the Judeo-Christian worldview or whatever, those kinds of semblances of, of Christian faith and practice, and it has carried a certain protected value in our society for many, many, many years. And so we are living in a time in which counterfeit teachers and so-called prophets abound. They're everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> so today, we want to continue with this discussion as the Apostle Paul moves into this next particular gift. And as we said last week, there is not just a recognition as we look around that false teachers and false prophets abound, and it's not probably unrelated to the fact that it's easy to propagate your wares in a society in which a semblance of Christian teaching has some merit, has some cachet, can be advanced with some measure of profit or notoriety, or following. But that's not the only thing that we observe, because we talked about this briefly last week, that Scripture provides or communicates great concern for the ubiquitous nature and deceptive threats that false prophets pose. A couple of examples is Matthew chapter 7, 15, where Jesus simply said, Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then in Matthew chapter 24, the section related to his teaching on the last days, he says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Jesus himself raises concern over the ubiquitous nature and deceptive threat of false prophets. But notice that in these two representative passages, that Jesus doesn't merely express concern and caution because of the large number and the deceptive nature of false prophets. It's not just that they're crafty and numerous, but they are also legitimately effective at leading many astray. His caution, particularly in the Matthew 24 passage, is that they actually are effective. It's not just that they have wicked intent 
and that they're good at being deceptive, but that they're effective at deceiving, at actually leading people astray. When you go to John chapter 8, you see this sort of explained. You see sort of the background of this kind of thing exposed. Jesus is basically exposing some Pharisees as counterfeits, men who claim to represent God and believe that they are the guardians and teachers of God's word, and, but in reality, they're self-deceived, self-deceived and deceivers. They're men who think they are righteous sons of Abraham, but they're actually sons of the devil. And in this section of John chapter 8, Jesus provides critically important insight into the characterization of Satan himself. Listen to what he says in John 8, 44. He's speaking to these these Pharisees, these false teachers. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Have you ever, has anybody ever seen a professional athlete up close Perform, like up really close. I, I've, I've, golf tournaments are probably the, the place where I've been able to see a professional athlete as close as you can possibly get to one, actually doing what they are trained and gifted at doing. And they make what they do appear to be so easy, effortless, natural. Of course, that gets in your head if you like to play golf, and the next time you're out on the golf course or on the driving range, you're thinking, I got this, man. I mean, I saw you just... And you, you realize there's something vastly different between you and the person you observed on the golf course, the professional athlete. Well, that's what it's like for Satan to propagate lies and deception. He does it in such a way that people believe him Because for him, it's effortless. It's easy. It's natural. He's very good at it. That's why so many can be led astray. Even Paul has to contend with the same kind of thing among the Corinthians, no less. We see this in chapter, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians prominently, where Paul in that letter has to spill a fair amount of ink kind of defending his ministry against the accusations, the false accusations and slander of false teachers that had gained sway and influence amongst the Corinthian believers, amongst the Corinthian church. And listen to what Paul says about these men and the true nature of their influence in Corinth, this very church, these very people that we're studying about right now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Verses 12 to 15, he says, And what I am doing, I will continue to do. In other words, he's defending himself against the false accusations of the the false teachers. He says, And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is the nature of deception. It's very deceiving. How's that for a statement straight from the Department of Redundancy Department? (laughs) But truly, the nature of deception is that it's incredibly deceptive. And when it's being propagated at its source from the father of lies, who is a murderer and a liar from the beginning, who when he speaks lies, it's his native tongue. It's natural. It's easy. It's completely effortless. And therefore, it's incredibly deceiving. And this is why the gift that we look at now from this list, this gift of spiritual discernment, is so incredibly important in the life of the church. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the last part of verse 10. Paul refers to this gift of spiritual discernment as the ability to distinguish between spirits. This phrase is comprised of two Greek words, diakrisis, which means the ability to distinguish, evaluate, differentiate. It carries the idea of separating, examining, and judging for authenticity. And then you have the second word, pneumatone, which is the plural form of pneuma, so it's the word spirits. Literally, this word can mean wind or breath, but it refers to that which sort of animates or gives life to something. And of course, in Scripture, it is most commonly a reference to either the spirit of man, the inner man, or demonic or unclean spirits. You see that all over the Gospels. Or it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the context in which the term is used will determine the appropriate designation of what you're talking about. So you're talking about the ability to separate, examine, and judge for authenticity a spirit or spirits. And those spirits could be the spirit of man, spirit of God, or even unclean or demonic spirits. So this gift that we are simply referring to as spiritual discernment is, in essence, a Holy Spirit-enabled ability to distinguish between utterances that are carnal, fleshly, of man, or they're demonic, literally demonic, or they are truly of the Spirit of God. It's this ability to discern whether or not or when the Holy Spirit is truly at work. That's that's the nature of this gift of discernment. John Calvin describes it this way. The discerning of spirits was a clearness of perception informing a judgment as to those who professed to be something. He goes on, I speak not of that natural wisdom by which we are regulated in judging, 
It was a special illumination with which some were endowed by the gift of God. The use of it was this, that they might not be imposed upon by masks or mere pretenses, but might by that spiritual judgment distinguish as by a particular mark the true ministers of Christ from the false. I also like Charles Hodge's description. He says, it appears, especially from the epistles of the Apostle John, that pretenders to inspiration were numerous in the apostolic age. He therefore exhorts his readers to try the spirits, whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. He's quoting from 1 John 4.1 there. He goes on to say, It was therefore of importance to have a class of men with the gift of discernment who could determine whether a man was really inspired or spoke only from the impulse of his own mind or from the dictation of some evil spirit. So he encapsulates this idea that you may not necessarily be contending with a demon spirit, although all lies sort of emanate from the source of the father of lies. It's not necessary to ascribe to someone who is teaching falsely or prophesying falsely that they are possessed by a demon. It might just be the machinations of their own carnal mind, the spirit of man. could be either. could be a mixture. Who knows? But the point is, it's discerning between two options, particularly, not necessarily exclusive, but two primary options, carnal spirit of man or demonic versus of God, of the spirit of God. The measure is testing against what the spirit of God would say, the spirit of God would reveal. And everything else comes up short. And this gift of discernment is given to those who have a particular ability to sort of separate those things out and clearly see the difference, to distinguish between those kinds of things. Now remember, lest you and I become sort of a little bit uh, pompous in our thinking about discernment or distinguishing these things, I go back to what I said before. Deception is very deceptive. And the father of lies is very good at deceiving us. And we can be lulled to sleep into patterns of, and habits of thought that make us vulnerable to false teaching. Any of us can fall into that. None of us are immune to that. That's the nature of false teaching. It tends to be very deceptive. We often go to the sort of the, you know, the elaborate extremes of false teachers who are just sort of babbling fools and just uttering all kinds of nonsense, and we think, I could tell that from a mile away. And that's not, that's great for you. Congratulations. But false teachers can be much more effective and much more subtle than that. And so we need, in the body of Christ, we need people who are able to discern, to take apart, to inspect, and to evaluate, and to measure, and to identify what is a true work of the Spirit of God. Listen to MacArthur again in this section. He says, Some ideas that are given as scriptural and that on the surface seem scriptural actually are clever counterfeits that would deceive most believers. Those with the gift of discernment are the Holy Spirit's inspectors, his counterfeit experts to whom he gives special insight and understanding. The gift was especially valuable in the early church because the New Testament had not been completed. 
Because of the difficulty and expense of copying, for many years after its completion, the Bible was not widely available. The Holy Spirit's discerners were the church's protectors. So this matter of discernment and this gift of discernment was of paramount importance for sure in the first century church. And in particular in first century Corinth, since there was so much spiritual confusion and so much importing of secular pagan ideas and practices that we've, we've talked about as we've studied this letter. I mean, there was actually a syncretism in certain cases of, of pagan practice and pagan belief. It was actually informing life and, and assembly worship and that kind of thing in the church. So this need for discernment or those with this gift of discernment or distinguishing of spirits was of paramount importance. This confusion in the Corinthian church in particular, it was affecting the spiritual growth of believers within the church, but it was also diminishing the effective testimony of Christ to unbelievers outside the church. We'll see that when we get to chapter 14 as well. The Apostle Paul is greatly concerned about this. There's a need for discernment, in other words. And in this particular list that the Apostle Paul gives us in chapter 12, it's clear that spiritual discernment is is sort of a counterweight to sort of the Corinthians' overweighted emphasis on prophecy and and tongues. You even see as we go through uh, the chapter, the next one we'll see is the, 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 the gift of tongues and then the interpretation of tongues. So as... The ability to distinguish between spirits, the spiritual discernment gift, is a bit of a counterweight to the Corinthian influence on prophecy. So is this interpretation of tongues a counterweight to their emphasis on ecstatic utterance or speaking in tongues. In other words, he's he's calling for credibility, for measuring, for authenticity of spiritual manifestation in the life of the church. Now, think about it this way, or or, or just think of this for a moment. Those that might be characterized as uh, prophets, modern-day prophets, who garner a significant following and otherwise unwitting professing believers sort of hold to every word, they're... They're, they're longing to hear the next word from the Lord, from this particular prophet. They are moved by the prospect that someone might prophesy over them, might have a special word, a prophetic word for them in particular. That kind of person, that kind of profile, that kind of prophetic profile is usually, if not consistently, Resistant to critique. Resistant and defensive when someone wants to get in their business and start really evaluating what it is they're saying and what it is they're doing. That's a tell. That is a tell. The true prophet of God would want nothing more than anything that they would say to be characterized as something not of God to be immediately exposed and immediately set aside as error. 
if they're a true prophet of God. They would not want any deceptive word to come out of their mouth. They would not want to be held responsible for leading any of the sheep astray. So please, test me. Evaluate me. Judge me. Judge my words. Test them against the truth. The true prophet welcomes that kind of scrutiny. Welcomes it. Is that what we see in these modern examples of prophetic ministry? Or do we see people who build a hedge around them that protects them from scrutiny, that guards them from people getting too close and really analyzing and calling out anything that could be considered false or erroneous? So the Apostle Paul is saying, no, 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 no. In life in the body of Christ, there need to be those who are manifesting spiritual discernment and who are examining and testing everything that's being spoken as a word from the Lord. Everything. That's a vast different perspective than what we see in our sort of modern examples of this. The Apostle Paul is clearly reigning in this public exhibition of spiritual gifts that had skewed things, particularly in the areas of speaking in tongues and, and prophecy. He even, he even instructs them specifically. I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about this more at length, but listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 29. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation... Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. And then verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. The word for way there is another form of the same word for distinguish that we see in chapter 12. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. Same, Same word, basically. In other words, he's encouraging this examination. He's calling for this weighing to happen. And anyone that would say, don't question me, don't don't question my teaching, that's a tell. Many people, obviously, as we've already kind of alluded to, will turn to 1 John chapter 4 as a companion passage to this this particular um, statement about the gift of distinguishing of spirits. And they'll they'll see 1 John chapter 4 providing further insight into this gift of spiritual discernment, which it does. If you want to turn there, you can. But 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, we'll just kind of spend a little bit of time here. It says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So there's John telling believers to not believe every spirit. Then he goes on to say, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There again is that caution about the ubiquitous nature and number of false prophets in the world. I mean, there's a reason why you need to test every spirit. And again, I want to make sure that we are mindful of the fact that it's, it's not uncommon for us to see a passage like this and to possibly 
think a little too mystically about this. Like, it's almost like, you know, we, we're, maybe we, we hearken back to that time long ago where we saw, you know, the old version of the exorcist. And, you know, unless someone's throwing up, you know, pea soup and their heads are turning around, then, you know, we, it's, I mean, we, we have these weird sort of mystical ideas about testing spirits. But it's just, it's just being able to ascertain, is what I'm hearing coming from man's machinations, from his own sort of conjured up thoughts on a matter, his own, you know, weaving together things and calling it the word of God, or is it possibly thoroughly demonic, but really more importantly, can I tell or can I discern if it's truly of the spirit? So you test the spirits, you you test to see whether it's from God. And the warning, because there's many false prophets, this this is a must in the life of the church. But here you see John reiterating what we heard from Jesus in Matthew 24, that in the last days, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. John's just echoing the same thing. But notice what John says in verses 2 in the first part of verse 3 of 1 John chapter 4. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, recall what the Apostle Paul said as he was introducing this correction at the very beginning of chapter 12 in verses 1 to 3. Paul says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You have sort of the similar locution here by John and by the Apostle Paul to say this is a test. If someone is speaking these things, that's not of the Spirit. That is not of God. If they're speaking these things, then it is. I believe that this helps us get at the core of what characterizes virtually all carnal and possibly even demonic utterances that are bandied about as words from God or as prophetic utterances or prophetic words. Now, let's look again at 1 John for a moment, but turn back to the beginning of John's letter in 1 John, if, you're, if, you're, if you have it open. And notice how he sets up the overarching backdrop of the letter in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I I think that this is helpful for us to kind of give us a sense of both what John is speaking about when he's talking about being able to distinguish between spirits and what Paul was referencing even when he started this particular instruction at the beginning of chapter 12 with these two kinds of expressions, these two kinds of contradictory confessions about Jesus. Jesus is accursed or 
Jesus is not from God or Jesus is not the Son of God. I mean, any of these kinds of confessions. Any utterance or teaching that in any way distorts, diminishes, or otherwise alters the clear and precise testimony and instructions of the apostles concerning the person, work, and teachings of the Lord Jesus is categorically not of the Holy Spirit. John opens up his letter by saying, I was there. I'm going to talk to you about what I have seen, what I have heard, what I have touched. And he repeats that. And I'm going to, I'm going to communicate this to you. You can count on this. This is trustworthy testimony. And then you get to John chapter 4 and he enjoins the believers to test the spirits, to not believe every spirit. And then he instructs them in how they can know whether they're hearing something that's from the spirit of God and whether it's not. And in both cases, in the case with John and the case with with the apostle Paul, they are referring to any utterance that in any way alters or diminishes or changes or reorients or reinterprets or reimagines what the apostles taught about the person, work, and teachings of Christ. You see this from the Apostle Paul in Galatians, where he says in Galatians chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen to what he says. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Did you hear me? Verse 9, again, as we have said before, now I say again, anyone or excuse me, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This was paramount in the minds of the apostles. And what you had, remember, deception is very deceptive. Effective deceivers are not spewing obvious lies. They're mixing truth with lie, and they often are extremely patient in that process. They are willing to string along otherwise faithful believers with truth claim after truth claim after truth claim, and then subtly drop in error that shifts the person, work, message, teaching, redemptive plan of God through Christ. It shifts it a little off course. Truth claim, truth claim, truth claim. Another little shift. Truth claim, truth claim, truth claim, truth claim. Another subtle shift. Deception is deceptive. It's not intended to show up on a billboard with flashing lights around it. And so the apostles would call us back to the clear straightforward instructions that they delivered concerning the person and work and will and teachings of Christ. And any variation from that is anathema, not of God. Last week, we talked about the standard that Scripture lays out 
for examining and discerning the authenticity of a prophet. And one of those standards that we talked about was the standard of doctrinal purity. We looked in the Old Testament where you could have a prophet who comes along and speaks something that actually comes to pass, but they have other things that they're saying that are impure, they're not in alignment with what God has said or who God is, and the the call is to set them aside because they lack doctrinal purity. So the point here is that no one who claims to speak for God gets a pass on this. It doesn't matter who they are. It does not matter how long they may have been characterized as orthodox. That doesn't matter. No one gets a pass. Regardless of their, even their mainstream status in the Christian community. No one gets a pass on this. Francis Chan, recounting a time when he was in a village in Myanmar, he said this, Every time I pray, nothing would happen. This isn't a sermon, so it's gonna, it's, it's, he's, this is a transcript of him speaking, so it's not like it's written. Just kind of bear with me. The last thing I'm going to do is try to talk like Francis Chan does, because he's, I'm not going to comment, I guess, but he's constantly overpassionate. Everything's, you know. Anyway, he says, every time I pray, nothing would happen. But that night in that village, I'm going God, these people have believed one thing their whole lives, and there's some really elderly people sitting at my feet. How am I supposed to convince them that this message that contradicts everything they've ever believed is true? God, you have to do something. There's little children here. I have no power. I'm speaking through a translator. You need to do something. Please visit. Show them one night of power like nothing they've ever seen in their lives. Begging God for this and believing, believing scriptures, scriptures that I memorized as a high school student came alive in me where I believe that Christ and I are one. And I was walking around that village and going, this is no different than if Jesus walked through this village because he says, I can do whatever he did and I can do greater things than he did. John 14, 12. And I go, I memorized that in high school as a high school student and I believe it right now. I am Jesus right now. He and I are one. He abides in me. I abide in him. These are not just memory verses. Is that what it means to abide in Jesus? That suddenly I am now Jesus walking around a village trying to heal people? I mean, is that how we to understand our union with Christ? That in becoming one with Christ, we become actually Christ walking around a village? And therefore, we can have his miracle-working power? I mean, is that, is that doctrinally sound? It's not. There are others who, are, who have strayed off of a clear proclamation of the gospel and a clear representation of who Jesus Christ is and what he calls us to. Andy Stanley and his recent advocacy is more increasing advocacy for LGBTQ ideology in the life of that church. 
He has, he has said this statement many times before. He is the master of you know, clever and glib bumper sticker theology kinds of statements. And he put an article up on the screen at that church that was written by Al Mohler calling him out for his advocacy for LGBTQI ideology to be appropriate and normal within the church and the ministries of the church. And he basically said that that article claims that I have left Orthodox evangelical theology, but the truth is I never shared a theology with him. Because I believe that that theology draws lines, and I believe that Jesus draws circles. That theology draws lines, but Jesus draws circles. And yet it was Jesus himself that said, if you're going to come to me, you better be willing to take up your cross and die to yourself. You better be willing to renounce mother and father and brother and sister. You better be willing to renounce everything if you were to be my disciple. That's a line. That's a line. But these subtle, little glib kinds of ideas get inserted and masses of people are deceived. Masses. So, Beloved brothers and sisters, we need discernment. We need general discernment, but we also need people with that special gift to help us discern, to test the spirits, to make sure that what we are hearing is truly of God. Every faithful teacher, every faithful proclaimer of God's word is wide open to scrutiny. And, and, and begs all the people hearing, be like the Bereans in Acts, who after they heard from Paul, they sought the scriptures to see if these things were so. Let's be discerning people. And with that, we'll close in prayer.